This morning, church, I invite you to draw your sword, take your Bible, and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I want to read in your hearing verses 1 to 12. Preach a sermon that's entitled, Excellent Living. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, allow me to begin at verse 1. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Finally, brothers, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. The Lord will punish men for all such sins as we've already told you and warned you. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, he who rejects this instruction does not reject man, but God, who gives you his Holy Spirit. Now about brotherly love, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all the brothers throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers, to do so more and more. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, to work with your hands just as we told you so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anyone. This is the word of the Lord and thanks be to God. You may be seated. There is a life we can live that pleases the Lord. There is a life that we can live that pleases the Lord. There is a life that we can live that pleases the Lord. I think that you would agree with me that Jesus deserves and demands our excellence. He deserves nothing less than our best. He has called us and enabled us to live an excellent life. In our passage, Paul tells the church, do this more and more. That phrase, more and more, is found not once but twice in our passage. We read of it in verse 1 and also in verse 10. It serves as bookends around this passage. Paul urges the church to continue living this excellent life, which they were living, and to continue to do so more and more. This life that we are called to live, it excels in obedience, verses 1 and 2. It's a life that excels in purity, verses 3 to 8. It's a life that excels in love, verses 9 to 12. First and foremost, Paul says that we are to excel in obedience. Now finally, brothers, regarding the instructions that we gave to you on how to live a godly life, a life that pleases the Lord, we urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. This is a compliment that Paul levels against the church. He says, you have heard our instructions and you have applied those instructions. You are living well, but I am urging you to do so more and more. You'll remember in chapter 1 that the apostle says that their testimony rang out throughout the entire region of Macedonia. That phrase, to ring out, is a trumpeter 
who is sounding his horn, that they lived in such a way that people not only in Thessalonica, but all throughout the region of Macedonia knew that those believers were turning to God away from idols, and they were eagerly awaiting the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul applauds them in chapter 1. He tells them that that their testimony is ringing out. And here in chapter 4, he urges them, do this more and more. When you hear that phrase, more and more, it's a word that means to excel, to abound, to overflow, to be in full quantity. He says, I want your obedience to overflow. I want your obedience to excel. And as he writes that, it's a gentle urging, isn't it? It's not a command. He doesn't doesn't speak to them as a parent reprimands a child. He does not bark at them as a coach yells at a player. He does not address them as a boss corrects an employee. No, this is a gentle urging. Do you hear it? I urge you in the Lord Jesus Christ to do so more and more. This speaks to the expansive quality of the gospel, that the gospel affects every area of life for all of our life. Whether we're eight years old or 88 years old, all of us would declare we have areas of deficiency, areas of imperfection. None of us have arrived. And regardless of whether we've been walking with Jesus for a few days or we've been walking with Jesus for decades, this urgent plea for us to live an obedient life more and more, it falls on our ears and we hear it and we say, yes, we need to excel in obedience. I don't claim to know any of the sermons that Paul preached while he was in Thessalonica, but he did say, we instructed you. That instruction came by the proclamation of God's word. And I'm quite sure that he must have instructed them to trust in Jesus, to ask for forgiveness of sin, to repent from their wrongdoing. I'm sure that he instructed them in his preaching and teaching to pray continuously, to read the scriptures religiously, to evangelize eagerly, to give generously, to love deeply, to forgive willingly. I'm sure that he instructed uh, the believers there in Thessalonica about the two great commandments, to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, to love your neighbor as yourself. I'm quite confident that in those weeks that he was there in Thessalonica, he instructed the believers on how to do so. And here in our passage, he tells them, do so more and more. Excel in obedience. But even as I say that, I must confess to you that there's a nagging question that snags my spirit. And the question is, am I more obedient to Jesus today than I was last week, last month, last year, last decade? It's a question that snags my spirit, and I suspect it may be bouncing around your spirit as well. Are you more obedient to Christ today than you were last week or last month, last year, last decade? Are we more obedient to Christ today than we ever have been? Or could we just be honest with ourselves today and say, you know what, there was a sector in a slice of life, there was a chapter in my existence when I, when I was more obedient than I, used, than I am right now. I, I, I used to be more obedient than I am today. When I hear that question, 
I'm reminded of a conversation that I had with a pastor friend a couple of years ago. And he made this statement that in the church, our education has exceeded our obedience. What he meant by that was not that we have far too many degrees and diplomas and academic achievements. What he meant was our spiritual education far exceeds our spiritual obedience. Let's be honest, most of us don't need another class on evangelism. We just need to do evangelism. We don't need another seminar on how to pray. We just need to pray. We don't need to take a class on how to read the Bible. We just need to open up the book and read the Bible. Now, don't misunderstand me. I am not belittling the value of training and education. But I think my friend was exactly right. That for most of us, our spiritual education far exceeds our spiritual obedience. That the truth of the matter is that if we had a choice between taking a class on a particular subject versus doing that subject, we would choose nine times out of ten, let's just take the class instead of actually doing it. I think that sometimes our education has exceeded our obedience. And here, I hear what the apostle is saying, and you do too, that we are to excel in obedience, that we are to obey more and more. And to the person who's listening to my voice who says, you know what, pastor, I think I'm doing okay. I think I'm pretty obedient. Oh, yeah? Let's take a quick test. First of all, let me ask you, how is your prayer life? What is the current uh, book of the Bible that you are reading and studying? When was the last time that you shared your faith with a lost family member, coworker, friend, or complete stranger? Do you have any resentment towards someone that you need to forgive? Is there a gaping hole of prejudice that's in your life that has been rudely ripped away and it's been reminded, uh, you've been reminded of it in these last few days and weeks? Is there some area of bitterness Will you hold animosity towards somebody else? Friend, are you excelling in obedience? Paul tells us that if we're going to live this excellent life, if we're going to live a life that pleases the Lord, we've got to excel in obedience. We've got to obey more and more. And perhaps this morning, as you listen to this sermon, as you interact with the Holy Spirit, is the Holy Spirit that is driving you to your knees at the point of repentance and confession of sin, where you have to say unto the Lord, Lord Jesus, I have not been as obedient as I need to be. Oh, Lord, please forgive me. Church, we are called to excel in obedience. But secondly, this excellent life is a life that calls us to excel in purity. In verse 3, the apostle says, um, it is God's will for you to be sanctified. Now over the years, I have entertained several questions from individuals asking, how do you determine God's will? And I understand that the question is usually couched in the particular will of God. For example, a student may come and say, how do you understand and discern God's will as far as what college to attend or who to marry or uh, what uh, profession to give yourself to, what career to pursue or when to retire, somebody may ask. And people ask specific questions about discerning and determining the will of God. And I always struggle with that, I just got to be honest with you, because I don't know what book of the Bible, chapter and verse to tell anybody when it comes to naming what college you need to attend. 
or the name of the person you need to marry or when you need to shift careers or, 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 or what the date should be that you ought to retire. When regarding the particular will of God, it's difficult for me sometimes because people come and ask and, and I don't have a book, chapter, and verse to give you. But I will say that when it comes to the general will of God, that God is very clear. Paul says, it is God's will for you to be sanctified. That word sanctified means set apart. Set apart from sin, set apart to his service. We are to be set apart. Now, how are we to be sanctified? What does it look like to be sanctified? Well, look at the very next phrase. The very next phrase says, you ought to avoid sexual immorality. That somehow the apostle says that if you want to go down the road of sanctification, it, it must be equivalent to, at some level, avoiding sexual immorality. You cannot say, I am sanctified, if you're engaging in sexual immorality. Uh, Paul is very clear here that whenever he makes a list of things that we ought not to do, have you ever noticed that sexual immorality always tops the charts? You would perhaps come to the conclusion that those Christians living during the days of the Bible were perverts. You know what conclusion I've come to? People are perverts, right? I mean, regardless of when you live, regardless of, of the culture in which you live. And so here, Paul, he tells the church what he tells the church every single time. Avoid sexual immorality. Now, I need to preface this by reminding you that Paul does not say avoid sexual intimacy. Sexual intimacy is a beautiful gift that God has given to a husband and a wife to be enjoyed within the confines of biblical marriage. And biblical marriage is always defined as a man and a woman for life. That any time sexual intimacy is taken outside of the bounds and parameters of biblical marriage, then sexual immorality results. What Paul is saying is he is saying avoid sexual immorality. He's not saying avoid sexual intimacy. Paul would say to every husband and wife, enjoy sexual intimacy. It is for procreation and for pleasure. So enjoy that within the confines of your biblical marriage. But anytime the gift of sex is taken outside of the parameters of God's design of marriage, sexual promiscuity, sexual immorality results. The original word is pornea, from which we get the English derivative pornography. It's really a rather general term. It's a broad umbrella, and the apostle writes in this way on purpose because he wants to speak in broad terms so that many things could be found under the umbrella of sexual promiscuity. And he was saying, if you call yourself a believer in Jesus Christ, then Jesus has called you to an excellent life, and part of that excellent life means that you excel in purity. Now, you and I would have to agree that we live in a sex-charged culture, right? The American culture sizzles. I didn't get very many amens in the first service. I'm not getting very many amens in this service, but you and I know exactly what I'm talking about. In our culture, sex sells. Sex sizzles. Wherever there's sexual promiscuity, it is promoted and praised. Yet the argument could be made that the sexual promiscuity and immorality of the first century was far worse than even our culture. Just allow that to sink into your brain. That in the typical Greco-Roman world, that sexual promiscuity was permitted and it, it was promoted. It was praised. 
for people to indulge in. One of the neighboring leading cities of Thessalonica was Corinth. And in Corinth there was a a grand glorious temple to a pagan goddess Aphrodite. Aphrodite was believed to be the goddess of fertility or love. So people would go and worship in the temple of Aphrodite in the hopes that she would somehow uh, make their cows and crops productive. That somehow she could uh, bless and, and make profitable and lucrative and productive uh, the farm and the family. Employed at the temple of Aphrodite were a thousand female priests. These thousand female priests, they didn't preach sermons. No, uh, it was believed that the best way to commune with Aphrodite was through sexual union. And so these thousand female priests actually were temple prostitutes. So people could come and they could uh, make a payment and then they could engage in sexual immorality with one of the uh, temple prostitutes in the hopes that somehow by that union their crops would be productive in the field and their cows would be productive in the farm and their family would be productive in the household. And all of this was regarded as acceptable. If you did an interview on the street and you went to Corinth or you went to Ephesus or you went to Thessalonica, and if you asked the question, is this just nasty? They would say, no, no, that's acceptable. That's what everybody does. Everybody and anybody does that. That's what you got to do in order to have a good farm. That's what you got to do in order to have a good financial family and a growing family. And and that's what you got to do. That's just normal. It was believed that in the typical Greco-Roman city, that every man had at least one mistress. It was assumed. Now, we live in a culture here in America, in the southeast, in the Bible Belt, under the buckle of the Bible Belt, here in an evangelical collection of Christians. We assume that most men don't have a mistress, right? That's a good place for an amen. We assume that most men listening to this message don't have a mistress. Yet in the first century, you walked up and down the streets, you went into any uh, place of the marketplace, and every person you saw, you just automatically assumed they had at least one mistress. Now keep in mind that the church is calling out individuals from this culture. So what Paul is insinuating is uh, some of those newly elected deacons that you have at First Baptist Thessalonica, they probably have some extracurricular activities going on on the side. You know what I mean? And so Paul was constantly calling the church out of impurity to excel in purity. Why is this? Because this is the life which we live that glorifies God. This is the life that's acceptable in the Lord's sight. So we are called to excel in obedience and we're called to excel in purity. What the apostle is driving at is he's asking everybody there in the church to ask the question, does my practice of faith match my profession of faith? Because what I profess with my lips, does it get reflected in how I live my life? 
Does my talk match my walk? Does the practice of my faith match the profession of my faith? For I declare that I am joined to Jesus. I declare that all my sins have been covered by the blood. I declare that Jesus is Christ over my life. And that profession of faith isn't matched and mirrored in the everyday practice of faith, of everyday life. This is the question that Paul is asking the early church. It's the question he's asking this church today. It's not that Paul leaves us just to wonder. He shows us how our practice of faith is to match our profession of faith. So in verse 4, he says, I want you to control your body. Control your body in a way that is holy and honorable. That the way that you excel in purity is by control. The word control means to have mastery over, to possess. And I am not advocating self-control. I'm advocating spirit-controlled. Because if you and I are just self-controlled or attempt to be self-controlled when it comes to purity in all forms, then we will utterly fail. Because we are limited in our power. Because we are flawed humans. So I am not advocating self-control while you pull yourself up by your bootstraps. We are not self-made men and self-made women. I am advocating spirit-controlled individuals. Later in the passage, he will speak about this gift of the Holy Spirit. It's the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. And if that spirit can raise Jesus from the dead, he can surely raise a pure life out of you and me. Amen? This Jesus who was raised by the Spirit. That same Spirit resides within you, beloved. So we have not a self-controlled life, but a Spirit-controlled life. To the person who says, "Uh, Preacher, I hear what you're saying. I'm picking up what you're putting down. But, listen, I can't help the way I think. I can't help the images that fly through my mind. I can't help the thoughts that I have. I can't help the way that I think. And the Bible says, yes, you can. Scripture says to take captive every thought and subject it to Christ. The word take captive is a a violent term. It means to arrest. It means to apprehend. It means to cuff and stuff. It means to wrestle it to the ground. It's a continual battle that goes on, but it's a battle nonetheless. It's a war that is waged, and you already have the victory in Jesus Christ. Now you just have to implement that victory. And so you wage the war by taking captive every thought, subjecting it to King Jesus, who's the righteous judge. And he levels an accurate verdict. So we can't just say, I can't help my stinking thinking. I can't help what comes into my mind. I can't help what I dwell upon. And the Bible says, yes, you can. To the person who says, you know, pastor, when it comes to purity, uh, pure language, I can't help the way I speak. I've been talking like this all my life. And I know, I mean, it's not language that's really good or glorifying, but You know, I learned it from my dad and learned it from my grandfather, really on both sides uh, of the the family tree. And so I've been around this kind of language. I go into the the workplace and I'm surrounded by this kind of language and I I just can't help it. I mean, sometimes it just flies out of my mouth and, and preacher, I cannot help what I say. And the Bible says, yes, you can. Because out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. The story is told of C.H. Spurgeon, that great prince of preachers, 
And the story goes that Spurgeon declares that when he followed Jesus Christ, he lost more than 50% of his vocabulary. I don't think that happened overnight. I think it happened over time. Where he said, I, I am subjecting my purity under the Lord. Not just in what I think, but also what I say. To the individual listening to my voice who says, uh, I really can't help what I do. I mean, it's just an appetite that I have. It's just an overwhelming urge and desire. I really can't help it. And, and, and pastor, are you telling me i got to be perfect? Nobody's perfect. You're not perfect, are you? I mean, it's just something that I've got to do. To air is human. So I just can't help what I do. And the Bible says, yes, you can. Because I've been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. The apostle is urging the church to excel in purity. How do you do that? Well, you control your body. Not self-control, spirit control. Then you get to verse 5, and he gives another example. Not only are you spirit controlled, but also don't act like a heathen. That's what he says. Just don't act like a heathen. Well, who is a heathen? Someone who does not know God. So don't act as if you don't know God. Don't proclaim to know God with your profession and then in your practice act as if God doesn't exist because you're acting like a heathen. If you've ever uh, thought to yourself, um, is this attitude, thought, word, action, is it acceptable in God's sight? Well, let me just suggest that you ask yourself a question, uh, do heathens do that? And if the answer is yes, then you, as a believer, probably shouldn't do it. You just simply ask yourself, does a non-believer think like this, talk like this, tell these kind of jokes, view this website, use this app, watch these movies, drink this beverage? Do people who are heathen, lost, people that are reprobates, do... Do, do they think like this? Do they act like this? Do they do this in the backseat of the car with their girlfriends on Friday night? And if the answer is yes, then you probably shouldn't do it. Because you and I are to be different than the world. Paul simply says, don't act like a heathen. Can I go one step further? If the only difference between your life and the life of a non-believer is that you give a couple of hours a week to church and church activities, but the remainder portion of the 168 hours of the week that you do the same things that the world does, can I, can I suggest, number one, you need to check your salvation at the door just to make sure you're saved. And secondly, if you are saved, then you need to ask the Holy Spirit to help you so that your practice of faith matches your profession of faith. The goal of the gospel is to transform us. The goal of the gospel is to transform us from the inside out so that we live an excellent life because it's the only life that pleases the Lord. It's a life where we excel in obedience. It's a life where we excel in purity. It's a life where we excel in love. Verses 9 to 12 the apostle concludes the passage and he says, now about love. I really need to write you uh, because you're doing a great job. 
the love that he mentions is brotherly love. It's phileo. It's from which we get the English word Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. And he says, you are doing it really well. Friend, you and I, we need to excel in love. I'm hesitant to use that word, love, because it's been hijacked over the years. Because even in Christian circles today, there is a brand and description of love that is spineless and wimpy and without conviction. So that there are Christian circles in our culture who say, we just love everybody. We don't judge. We don't judge anybody. We don't judge you. We don't judge you. We don't judge you. You can do whatever you want to because we don't judge. We just love. Now, friends, when I hear that, that's not loving. That's lying. Um, and I don't know why people say that. I don't know why they say it that way. Maybe that's just the way I hear it. I don't know. <laughs> But when I hear that language, I hear that people, you're not loving anybody, you're lying to people. Because if I really love you, I've got to tell you the truth. And if I see you going down a path of destruction, the worst thing I can do is pat you on the back and say, brother, I love you. And if you see me going down a path of destruction, the worst thing you can do is come up and pat me on the back and say the very same thing, brother, I love you. No, you don't. You're lying to me. Because you and I, have to excel in love. Love is not blasting people. Love is not putting people in their place. No, no, it's, it's brotherly love. It's phileo love. It's telling the truth. It's language that is the truth sprinkled with grace. It's hard to achieve, I admit, because sometimes we err on the side of truth with no grace. And other times we flip and flop and we emphasize grace with no truth. And I know it's a, it's a fine line to walk, but as people of brotherly love, people of genuine care, we've got to walk that line of grace and truth. So what does it look like to excel in love? Well, Paul doesn't leave us to speculate. He gives us some very practical cookies on the bottom shelf kind of examples. He ends out the passage by simply saying, lead a quiet life. Mind your own business. Work hard with your hands. Lead a quiet life. What does that mean? It doesn't mean silence. It means being engaged in relationships where you speak appropriate words. That's leading a quiet life. Sometimes you are in a relationship. It's a friendship. It's a family member. It's a coworker. You're in a relationship and you need to say something. Other times you need to be quiet. You need to not only know what to say and how to say it, but when to say it. And friend, I don't know about you, but that takes the power of the Holy Spirit for me to discern that. Amen. For me to discern what to say and when to say it and how to say it. I've been impressed with this over the last couple of weeks. I've had um, in the wake of the George Floyd tragedy, I have had African-American pastors that I have called and we've engaged in conversation. And one dear friend said to me over the phone, Watkins, I've got to know why are my white friends not saying anything? My white pastor friends, my white Christian friends, why are they silent about this issue? 
And I responded to him and I said, I can only speculate that I think that part of the reason of, of why your white Christian friends are silent is because they don't want to run the risk of saying something that can be misconstrued or saying something that could be regarded as racist so they just don't say anything at all. And he responded and said, thank you, thank you. I, 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 don't, I don't come at it from that perspective because in my culture, silence equates to condoning. So when I don't hear anything from you, from other people that look like you, when I don't hear anything, I hear that you are what I perceive it is that you are condoning. And I said, oh, my brother, no, you know me better than that. You know I'm not condoning. What happened on the streets of Minnesota? That was terrible. That was a tragedy. Uh, that, should, that should not be uh, uh, permitted because we, as God's people, we always stand up against every injustice and against every form of racism. But we have to know when to say, what to say, and how to say it. And it takes the power of the Holy Spirit to guide our conversation. But it's a conversation nonetheless that we must have. So when Paul says lead a quiet life, he's not saying be quiet, just shut up. He's not saying that at all. He's saying learn how to say the appropriate words in the appropriate relationship, in the appropriate time, in the appropriate way. Then he says, mind your own business. Don't you love that phrase? You can quote the Bible when you tell somebody, just mind your own business. This is the only time in the New Testament this phrase is found. What does it mean, mind your own business? Well, the opposite of minding your own business is being a busybody. Somebody who's always engaged in the gossip, always got to spill the tea, always got to tell what's going on, always got to tell this juicy gossip or that juicy gossip, what he did, what she did, when that happened, where that happened, always stirring the pot. That's a busybody. And Paul says, just mind your own business. Once again, that is not a hands-off approach, walk away and say, I just can't do anything. No, no, because we have brotherly love, brotherly love must be demonstrated. It's not in a vacuum. It's not abstract. But love must be personified. Love must be demonstrated. So by minding your own business, he's simply saying, don't be a busybody. But that doesn't mean that you're not engaged in relationships with people. No, you've got to carry yourself in a way that demonstrates a love that has no doubt. Your friends, your family, your coworkers, your neighbors, they've got to know that you love them. And how? Yeah, it's just by your words, but it's also by your actions. So Paul says, lead a quiet life. He says, mind your own business. In 30, he says, the way you show love is work hard with your hands. Elsewhere, Paul will say, he who does not work does not eat. There is an embedded work ethic in the gospel. We don't work for our salvation, but we work out our salvation. And because Christ is in us, we ought to be the best workers in the marketplace. Thought it'd be nobody in the office building that has a better work ethic than you. Because there's something about giving all of our effort to the work of our hands. Now, why do we do that? To get the promotion? Well, maybe, maybe not. But the real reason is because there's a so that in that verse. So that you'll win the respect of outsiders. So that people will know you're not dependent on them, but you're dependent on God. 
The reason you live in such a way is so that you have the opportunity to share the gospel. It is one thing for you to stand up and proclaim the gospel and shove it down somebody's throat. It's a totally other situation for that person to in turn recognize there's something different about you. Will you please tell me what the difference is in your life? Oh, my friend, when they say that, they just open up the door for you to share the gospel because you have earned the right to be heard. Because you excel in obedience, in purity, and in love. Ultimately, what Paul is telling the church is I want you to be like Jesus. Because stop and think with me. Didn't Jesus excel in obedience, in purity, and love? The Apostle Paul will say in the Philippian correspondence that Jesus was obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him, gave him the name that's above every name, that the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and earth and under the earth, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Lord. The prophet Habakkuk says of the Holy One, the Lord, his eyes are pure. John, the beloved disciple, says of Jesus that Jesus is love. Jesus is the personification of excellent obedience, excellent purity, and excellent love. What Paul is urging the church is be like Jesus. Just be like Jesus. And I wonder this morning, church, is there some gaping area of deficiency in your life? After hearing this message from this passage, let's just be honest, all of us ought to fall on our faces before the Lord. Say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. But I wonder, is is there a specific area? An area where your education exceeds your obedience? Is there a place where you are a walking contradiction because your practicing faith does not mirror or match the profession of your faith? And I wonder, is there some relationship in your life. It may be a significant other, it may be a spouse, it could be a friend, a coworker, a classmate, a teammate. Is there some relationship in your life where you need to show brotherly love? I wonder, is there something that you need to surrender to Jesus today? And maybe we could all join and simply say, all to Jesus I surrender, and all to him I freely give. And I will ever love and trust him, and in his presence I'll daily live. So I surrender it all. All to thee, my blessed Savior, I surrender it all. I wonder today, is there something that you need to surrender unto him? There is a life we can live that glorifies the Lord. There is a life that we can live that glorifies the Lord. There is a life that we can live that glorifies the Lord. It's a life that excels in obedience and excels in purity and excels in love. Simply stated, it's a life that excels in Jesus Christ. And this morning I wonder, do you need a little bit more help from Jesus today? If you do, he's right here to help, to heal, to restore, and to transform. To God be the glory. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give you this moment of invitation. Help us to respond in faith. To respond as you see fit.
Oh, Father, uh, there may be somebody listening to my voice who does not know you as Savior and Lord. Today can be the day of their salvation. There may be a believer listening who realizes there is a gaping hole of inconsistency in my life. And today, Lord Jesus, I confess my sin and I ask for your help so that I'll walk out transformed. We give you this invitation. We pray it in Jesus' name.